It's a bit over-eager a few minutes ago, I think. Um, wanting to uh, crack on with this evening's message on election. Um, we're in Ephesians chapter 1. And um, we're, we're going to, uh, to be, in just a moment, reading from our statement of faith. But we will also, of course, be rooting everything in God's Word. We're seeking to show how what we confess, what we state, is drawn from Scripture. And um, uh, I don't know if that's reassuring or not. You might say, oh, definitely going to be here a long time, or, or not. Uh, I literally, my notes I'm, uh, are this, those three points. <laughs> there is no text in between. Why? Because I'm very convinced and persuaded that what we confess in our statement of faith is accurate, that it's biblical, that it's drawn from the text, and we're going to let God's Word speak for itself. And we're not going to, I hope, and we'll humble ourselves before God uh, because we can sometimes bring things implicitly that we're not always aware of, but I hope we're not going to be imposing some sort of extra-biblical philosophical mm -hmm. constructs or anything. The, the reason there's resistance about this subject is generally, in my experience, simply rooted in how we feel about it and in a sense of inadequacy in explaining it to others because we feel we have to have an answer for everything. And um, that's, that's simply not the case. God's Word tells us what we need to know, and that is enough. So uh, let's, let's read. It's a longer statement, isn't it? But let's, let's read that together. We believe that God, before the foundation of the world, for His own glory, did elect an innumerable host of men and women to eternal life as an act of free and sovereign grace. This election was in no way dependent upon His foresight of human faith, decision, works, or merit. Amen. And um, uh, there, there's doubtless someone out there that's seeing the, the thunder and the lightning kick off outside and they're, they're like, oh, I don't know. Is that, you know, um, the judgment of God on this or statement? Absolutely not. We believe it and we say it with our chests. We believe um, and, and these are timeless truths for turbulent times. There's nothing new about this doctrine or teaching, nor is there anything that is simply 500 years old about this doctrine or teaching. It is something that um, God's people have subscribed to um, well before the Reformation. It has nothing whatsoever to do with, to name a name that might mean something to some, John Calvin. Um, uh, uh, did he talk about it? Absolutely. Did he systematize certain things in his Institutes of the Christian Faith? Yes. Was he an important character in Christian history? Absolutely. But we do not believe what we believe because he believed it or taught it. Personally, I have no particular um, inclinations toward that individual. There are plenty of things with which I would disagree with him on. Uh, and I know he would disagree with me on uh, and uh, might, might not, in fact, cherish my ecclesiology, for example. There were uh, uh, certain comments he had to say about people who practice baptism of believers. And uh, that might be, um, uh, you know, that's, he's fully persuaded in his own mind. I'm fully persuaded in mine. We believe what we believe 
because it's in Scripture. And uh, there, it, it, I really want us to test and analyze our own discomforts, our own preconceived notions, our own perceptions of things through the lens of Scripture. If there is a subject that people raise an eyebrow at, it is this one for whatever reason. Scripture is clear, as we're going to see now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. When we talk about, lack of a better term, election, the second line of the statement, um, we are not saying that God looked through the portals of time and saw certain people that He liked more than others. We're not saying that God um, observed this person's conduct and that person's behavior and their character and their qualifications and their qualities and so forth and elected us, cast a vote for us. We're not, we're not saying that. that, that uh, you know, uh, as the uh, conservative party members will be doing uh, presumably in the next week or however long, uh, you know, there's some sort of uh, choice here and God is saying, I like this one more than that one. Uh, that, that's, that's not what this is about. In fact, it's very clearly not the case in our statement. And it's very clearly not the case in the scripture which we just read. Again and again, you see the expression to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His grace, according to the riches of His grace. Everything in these verses revolves around the grace of God and the glory of God. And the grace of God is in service to the glory of God. And the glory of God illuminates the grace of God. We are simply saying that God has chosen a people for Himself. We're not making comment on any basis by which or for which God has made that choice. Simply, God has chosen a people identified in this, past, uh, in this particular statement as an innumerable host of men and women. 
I love the way that that is framed uh, because there are some approaches to election which will uh, so emphasize the individuality of people within that. And don't make any mistake, I do believe that God, if you are a follower of Christ and you are in the family of God, it is because not you have chosen God, but He has chosen you, as Jesus Himself said to His disciples. Okay? I believe that. But sometimes the focus can be so on that that there are people who have not done evangelism, for example. There are people who have come up to me while I am doing evangelism, and they have told me that I'm wasting my time on them because, as they said, I am not elect. There was one time someone told me that they were elected to hell. Notice our statement does not make any comment on that. Here's the truth. Remember the past weeks we've been talking about doctrine of humanity and about sin. God doesn't have to elect you to hell. You're already going there apart from the grace of God. This is God's sovereign intervention into your lostness. This is God's sovereign intervention into the, the rebellion uh, that you have made against God. And God is arresting you in your lostness before you even existed and saying, Ben, I'm bringing them into my kingdom. Not because you're a good person. Because God already knows you're not a good person. Before... but you know, just think logically for a moment, and I hope I'm not imposing anything on the text here, but just the, the logical sequence of events, sin has to, to come before fall, and sin and fall have to come before salvation. Salvation makes no sense apart from the, the, the sin of man and the fall of man and our ongoing sin nature, right? So, so God chose to create the world, Yes? Before he created the world, he chose to create the world. And in, uh, so far as we can piece together from the counsel of God's word on this, he chose to create the world. And having chosen to create the world, he chose to create people in his image. And he chose to create people who had the freedom of choice, as we talked about um, the, really the past couple of weeks. And he knew. Not only did he know but in, from what we can tell in Scripture, according to the sovereign plan of God, that people would rebel against Him. That they would abuse the freedom of choice that He gave them and rebel against Him. But God chose to save those who would rebel against Him in sin for Himself. To bring them to Himself. The text here says that. It says that it is an eternal choice before the foundations of the world. To say eternal does not mean to say some sort of, you know, um, uh, reaches back in, in sort of like an everlasting sort of in the past, but simply to say out of, out of our constructs of time and space, before existence as you and I know it was a thing. God was. God is. God has always been, and God will forevermore be. And God, from before the foundations of the world, chose people for Himself. Chose to save people to Himself. That actually should be very... In fact, I don't understand why people act like this is not reassuring. 
Why, would, why do we, we buck up against this sort of teaching? I think because it robs us, we feel, of our sense of individuality. People are very hyper-focused on their freedom and their freedom of choice that they, 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 they feel that this has taken something away from them and what they contribute. But we've already established again and again that we are sinners, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we freely are gravitating towards and oriented towards things that are consistent with a spiritually death-like state. If that is the case, what is our hope? But that God knows we could never choose Him. God knows that we would, left to ourselves, never choose Him. So God chooses us from before anything was made. Before the foundations of the earth, the passage before us explicitly says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It's an eternal choice. Not only is it an eternal choice, it is an inestimable choice. And this is where we have that, that problem with um, uh, you know, weighing up questions that aren't ours to weigh up. People fretting about who is elect. And who is not elect? That is not your business, nor is it mine. People talking about, oh, I just don't understand how election works with, with evangelism. You know, and the big questions of evangelism and the sovereignty of God. We evangelize to bring people to a sovereign God. We, 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 we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that this innumerable host of men and women that God has chosen will enter into the blessings of their chosenness. Do we know who is chosen? Absolutely not. Is it our business to know who's chosen? No. It is our, uh, our business to obey Christ who says, go and make disciples. And, and, and as we go and make disciples, we can do so in the joyful confidence that God has chosen an innumerable host of men and women to eternal life. And it is God's sovereign purpose to use the witness of some people to the salvation of His eternally chosen people. Does that make sense? I mean, we, I, I really think sometimes we overthink this. That's why I, I, when I was reading the text, I was following the flow of the text, and I came up with three things, and I was like, this is fairly easy to talk about, actually, if we believe it. Our statement is very clear. God has chosen people from before the foundations of the earth, an eternal choice, and it is an net inestimable choice. We cannot fathom the depths of God's grace. We cannot um, uh, calculate the extent of His loving kindness. We, we, we cannot hope to put a number on those that God has chosen. Yes, there are various uh, groups out there that will limit the extent of God's grace. We do no such thing. It is an innumerable host. Okay, um, There are people who... who cult groups who will uh, hype up this once in scripture mentioned 144,000. Have you seen, you've seen that? 
Yeah, so last Sunday, we actually had a woman I've been talking with for two years. Sat there. She couldn't speak. She had a note, actually. says, I've lost my voice. Um, I've been talking with her. I, I must be two years. Concerned family had reached out to me saying, she's not from a Jehovah's Witness background. Somehow she got involved with the Jehovah's Witnesses when she moved to London. And can you talk to her? So I've been talking with her. She doesn't believe what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. But she feels like she can't get out, which I found absolutely terrifying and, and weird and frustrating and all sorts of strange things. It's like, they're nice people. and what, what I, These are massive red flags. These are the reasons why you should get out. And trust me, they have zero power. Like, you know, but I feel like they'll put me out for, like, excommunicate me. Let them. I, I told her, I said, I'll take it as a badge of honor, frankly. I don't want to be a part of their little, you know, imaginary version of the 144,000. I want to be a part of God's kingdom. Yes, I want to be a part of, of the kingdom of the biblical Jehovah. Uh, not some sort of fictional um, cult figure. You know, so, so there are people that are like, oh, the 144,000, and they'll pass the bread and the wine, and they'll just watch it. They won't take it because they're not in the kingdom and they're not able to eat the bread of the kingdom and they're not able to drink the cup of the kingdom. That's deeply wrong. Uh, never mind the fact that in Revelation, not to drift into that, 144,000 are there around the throne and then he says, and I looked and behold an innumerable number, a great host that no man could number. It's literally the next verse. Read the text. It's there. Get all you know, caught up in these little details. Watch out, cults love that. They fo they'll hyper focus on one thing and miss the whole picture. Uh, what is that saying about you know missing the wood for the trees? They're focused on that one sapling, and uh, and, and there's this forest of truth that they're neglecting and rejecting. Uh, brother and sister um, uh, told me about some uh, fellow on the high road. Uh, no surprise, anyone who does evangelism on Woodgreen has high road stories. Um, and uh, this fellow was uh, a light, light worker. A light worker. Has anyone heard that phrase before? A light worker. All sounds very uh, uh, new agey, kind of, you know. So I Googled it. It is a thing. There's a group of people who believe they are light workers and they actually have taken this this 144,000 concept from scripture and mix it with a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with scripture whatsoever and this this sense of exclusivity can can we be honest and i i generally because i you know we are a a, a church that believes this i find myself Addressing people who might be on paper more proximate to us, okay? Uh, reformational believers who I think have fallen out of balance, brothers and sisters, and then some who I'm not so sure about. Who, who, there's a stereotype of the frozen chosen. Have you heard about that? Uh, the frozen chosen, maybe you've been spared that sort of um, experience, but these are the people who see themselves as the elect. They were the elect of God and his Christ. And you, you know, uh, you get a certain kind of arrogance and bad behavior that attends to that 
someone has some assurance that they are elect and they're forever analyzing someone else who is not. There's a movement within um, Baptist churches that I would be very keen to reject um, as having anything to do with us. It's called, they're, they're called Gospel Standard Baptist. They are in the southeast of England, and um, I gather there are some in Netherlands and maybe a few other places where their theology is, is, is there. But the Gospel Standard Baptists are um, a particular grouping of, an, uh, of, of people who, um, my good friend uh, who came from that circle says they were always looking for the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit that they were elect. And... Uh, their churches are filled with people who lack assurance, who lack confidence of who they are in Jesus Christ, who gather very regularly. The places are packed with people, but they're living under a, a, a weight of um, uh, self-analysis and legalism. And they also reject the concept of the free offer of the gospel, uh, evangelism, these things. The historical label for their specific system is hyper-Calvinism. It's not a myth. They do exist. I had the great pleasure, um, very uniquely, of speaking at a conference on evangelism for a room full of their young people. So I don't know how that went over. Uh, after the fact, when they go back to their, their churches, and what's the conference about? Well, it was about evangelism. You know, oh. Why would they be offended by that? Well, because that's not our business. God will sovereignly save those whom He wills. And it's this attitude that God will save those whom He wills without our, with, without our help, which is whether it's accurately what was said or not. Um, uh, that, that's, we'll leave that to historians. But there is this story that developed about the um, Baptist missionary to India, William Carey who, uh, when they were talking about India, and there's a sense of, you know, who will go? And he stood up, he, he made shoes. He had no theological training. He had very little experience at all. None of the experienced pastors were, were stepping up. None of them were eager to go. He stood up and, and began to talk about this burden of, of going to India to proclaim Christ and this this man said, and there's various versions of the story. The less extreme version is the man says, sit down, young man. You're an enthusiast. By which he meant that this, this person was getting caught up in the moment. And he, he's, he lacks training. He lacks knowledge. He has zeal. But he needs to, to pipe down a bit. The other more extreme version of the story is, sit down, young man. If God wills to save the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. That is, disciples will just happen, apparently. They'll just get made. And, it, it, you know, it, it, we're not saying that God needs us. Be very clear about that. But what we are, we are saying is that God has sovereignly planned and purposed that His people go out and bear witness to Jesus for the ingathering of this innumerable number. So it is a part of his plan and purpose to use people in the salvation of people. How many? We're never told. We are told again and again that it is a number that no one can number. When God said to Abraham, 
in you shall all the nations be blessed. And when he took Abraham out into the, um, the, the night and showed him the canopy of stars over the earth. And imagine how uh, without light pollution and all that in the wilderness of the Middle East, just the glory of that. Innumerable stars. And he gestures to them and says, this, this, your, your people will be greater than the number of the stars of the heavens. And think about the sands of the seashore because he, he, he said, and the sands of the, the seashore. And think of every grain of sand. The message of election is not limiting, friends. It is not denigrating to God. It is, it is not this sort of thing where we um, uh, have this you know, sort of cap on the numbers of who is saved and who's not. Although I do know and believe that one day the last person who will be saved will be saved. There is a time when it comes to an end. And then there is the end. It's a number, though, that cannot be counted. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about this and um, had various uh, uh, things that he was dealing with pastorally when he, he spoke uh, about the innumerable number. But he made the argument that uh, although Jesus says narrow is the, the gate and few are those who find it, we're misapplying that passage to infer something about the success of Jesus Christ in saving His people. And the efficiency of the triune Lord God in electing people. To imply that His elect people is anything less than vast is to do God a disservice, dishonor. To forever be limiting the, uh, the, the scope of God's reach and the boundaries of, in, of His inheritance is not a godly impulse. There will be an innumerable number. And that's why we can go out with confidence and strength to make disciples. Because we know that we're still here. Jesus is still in heaven. That means there's still people to be saved and they will be saved because God has chosen them. And He has sovereignly placed you in this place at this time among these people to reach those that He has planned to save. Do you believe that God is doing that in and through you? It is an inestimable choice because we even see it in Scripture. Um, God, God deals in um, inestimable figures uh, of, of greatness. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us, Paul is writing, 2,000 years ago to a church in Ephesus. But he's talking about all of those who have trusted in, in the Lord and followed Him for ages past and all who would for ages to come, we cannot calculate that. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for the adoption 
of sons. That we, um, um, uh, so, so he says, through Jesus Christ, according to what the purpose of his will. Which brings me to the uh, third thing and final thing. See, it's fairly painless. It, it, it's an unconditional choice. I think this is the area that actually people sometimes struggle with the most. It's an unconditional choice. It's not based on what you have done. It's, it's not based on you believing. You believe based on what God has chosen in the past. And some people go to the passage where um, uh, it says those whom he foreknew he predestined. And they impose a modern contemporary understanding of foreknowledge onto that passage. To foreknow is not to, it's, it's different from foresight. Does God have foresight? Absolutely. To foreknow is, is to love before, to relate to before. God is, is relating to people, loving people from before the foundations of the earth, thus before they exist. He knew you, loved you, and chose you. Having set his love upon you. Is there any other reason that's given? scenarios and messiness that can attend to adoption. Um, but especially when it comes to, to attachment and things like that. Failed adoptions, um, all of that. It's, it's a beautiful thing, a glorious thing, but it can be a very messy thing. A very painful thing. There are families that I know who have adopted a child and that child has grown up to hate them. And there can be that sort of thing of like those who are outsiders, and this isn't necessarily the most helpful way to think about people who've adopted children, but it's, it's like this beautiful, radical, gospel-centered thing that you love this child, the child just doesn't seem to appreciate that. There's situations that haven't ended that way, but where the, the child has grown on to be quite monstrous even criminal. And just a heartbreak. Of like we we wrong, where did we go wrong? Children, you know, but do parents choose to adopt a child based on what that child has done or what that child will or will not do? No. That's actually not how adoption works. Why do people adopt children? Fundamentally I know people are complex and sinners and all of that, and there may be any number of things going on. Fundamentally, because they love that child. Love. 
compels them. And we are not told any other reason for why God would choose people in Jesus before the foundations of the world for His purposes other than that He's loved us. That is what is guiding the choice. He's setting His love upon us so that we might, yes, be holy and blameless before Him, so that we might be to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace, as He reiterates multiple times in the passage. But why me? Why not someone else? Why, of those who were lost, did He take this person and not that person? Would you ask an adoptive parent that? Oh, why them? Why that one? Seems a bit crass to ask, doesn't it? It's a bit inappropriate, frankly, from an outside perspective. I don't think it, it, it's probably wise to speculate as to what an adopted child thinks or how they approach that, that, that question. But there is that sense in which all that is needed is to know they're loved. God's loved us. He's chosen us. We can ask why me, but that why me question should be birthed in a sense of assurance and love and gratitude. Not self-righteousness. Not arrogance. Not haughtiness. Not boasting. Right? God chose you. You can say that with confidence if you're trusting in Him. But to say that God chose you to be saved is to confess, I needed saving. I was a child of the devil. Basically, it says as much. Righteous man that Paul was in the eyes of his culture, according to Jewish standards. We're children of death. God chose us. And that is, that is good news. That is very good news. So it continues, this election was in no way dependent upon his foresight of human faith, decision, works, or merit. God loved us. He knew us. He related to us before we were there to relate to. And he chose us. And out of the depths of mysterious love, he chose an innumerable host. Why? So that they might be holy and blameless before Him. So they might be to the praise of His glorious grace. It's an unconditional choice. This uh, one man uh, was very aggressively speaking against that particular point. And I remember that he, he was... Um, the substance of his argument was basically screaming, whosoever... Uh, 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 you know, whosoever... <laughs> I won't imitate him, but you know, he's, he's screaming, whosoever, I believe whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe that. I believe that the whosoever's who call on the name of the Lord will be saved because God has chosen them. That's why they call upon the name of the Lord. That's, 
It, it, it's not incompatible at all. And he, he, he was screaming, whosoever, whosoever. Um, God elected because man selected and man calls out upon him and he gets saved because we have a whosoever will kind of God. No, friends. God did not elect because you selected. He elected. And so you selected. And as you, you could not have done that. You would not have done that if it were not for the grace of God. And it's all for His glory and all for His grace. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus said that Himself to His disciples. Granted, yes, in that very specific context. But He said, You did not choose Me. I have chosen you. The question then arises, what do we, what, again, evangelism. Do we appeal to people to believe? Absolutely. Do we appeal to people to trust in the Lord? Do we appeal to people to call out? Do we offer the grace of God? Absolutely. Why? Because of this. Not against it. Because of this. God has chosen from eternity past, an eternal, an eternal choice, an inestimable choice, and an unconditional choice to save people. And he, he saves people through the witness of other people so that those who hear the witness of other people call upon His name. The Lord says, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is, that is absolutely scriptural, that is biblically faithful and accurate. The Lord says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And He also says, for within are those whom the Lord has gathered. We enter into the kingdom of God. In response to the invitation of God. And when we get on the other side, we look back and we see He did it all for His glory, according to His grace, that we might worship Him. Does that not give you assurance and hope? If you're trusting in Him, it's because He's chosen you. It's because He loves you. And He he desires your worship. And He sent you out to make disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank You for helping us to see, I hope, simply and clearly from Your Word something that I, I think people can make heavy lifting of, but seems fairly, fairly clear scripturally. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for any tension that we feel within ourselves about these things. Your word is clear. And it's perfectly, beautifully balanced. You have chosen us. And you have chosen us to go and proclaim Christ to others. 
so that all whom you have chosen, an innumerable number, will be saved. Lord, motivate our evangelism, motivate our gospel witness, motivate our um, disciple-making, mission, in the assurance that people will be saved. Our labor is not in vain. And you are glorified regardless of what happens. Because as we proclaim you, we're, we're proclaiming your excellencies. We're giving you honor and glory. We're celebrating you, the one who adopted us into your family. Help us in this. Help us to be confident and clear and convictional, compassionate and kind. In Jesus' name, amen.